Hi, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm Lisa, your host, and this podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. PR Daily is a great resource for communicators like me. I drop in there to get my training, to get more information about what's going on in the industry, and really just to learn more about what my colleagues are up to as well. So to find more episodes of the podcast, please join me there at prdaily.com or uh, join me at the website, which is fridayreporter.com. And if you like the show, be sure to leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, because that really helps get the word out about the podcast and the work that we're doing here to get you guys to know more about the reporters that cover your industry. Hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's conversation is one I've really been looking forward to. I am lucky enough to be with Rajesh Mershandani, who is uh, a senior advisor for the UN Foundation, but also has a rich background in journalism, not just here in the U.S., but internationally. Rajesh, I can't wait to get into this conversation. Thank you so much for being with me. Lisa, it's a pleasure to be with you. So Rajesh, let's start. I mean, first off, you have this rich background, having worked for BBC and a lot of other really well-known uh, uh, journalism spaces. Tell me a little bit about how you got into journalism and, and tell me a little bit about your background, if you will. Sure. So we're going back many, many, many years now. <laughs> um, I worked for the BBC for 21 years in all. Um and I got into journalism sort of by chance, I'll be honest with you. I went to university in the UK uh, and I went to study economics, mm. thinking at the time, oh, I'm going to go and get a nice job or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the, the encouragement of my parents, looking at all my com- in you know, contemporaries from the, the Asian community saying, oh, look, you know, their son's doing very well in finance. You should go and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did economics and maths and modern languages at school, so at high school. So uh, economics was not an unusual choice for me to do at university. And the, 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 the program at Bristol University where I went was very well regarded. Um, so I went off to do to university to do economics, and then after one semester, realized, oh, you know what? I can't really do this. Mm-hmm. There was a, I was doing an accountancy um, subsidiary course, and like my my T accounts wouldn't balance, and I thought this is not necessarily the right move for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think also just moving away from home and moving to a new city and having that first taste of freedom makes you start to think yourself. Mm-hmm. dangerously and think okay what do I want to do um and so I spent a while at university not knowing what I wanted to do but thinking I, I can't do finance mm-hmm. and then one summer the university career service ran a one-week program called an introduction to the media um and I went on that program and loved it just mm-hmm. loved it and you did a bit of writing and a bit of filming and a bit of radio and then thought oh yeah I, there's something here mm-hmm. and then after that that was then heading into my final year at university after that i did some writing for the student newspaper and then i went and got myself one week's work experience at a local station um and loved it and really found an aptitude for it 
and they seemed to like me at the end of that first week i managed to get on air which was apparently you know un very unusual wow yeah um, just as a just as a, just as a reporter and thought okay i think i found the thing um and then applied to do a postgraduate program in broadcast journalism uh, in the uk for a year did that loved it again had you know work placements during that time loved those and then and then managed to translate one of those work placements into my first job, which was as a reporter and newsreader at a small radio station in the city of Cardiff in Wales called Red Dragon FM, mm. uh, my first ever job. Red Dragon uh, I, FM, is that right? Red Dragon FM, mm. yeah, that's it, yeah. Um, you know, the Red Dragon is a symbol of Wales. Sure. Um, and I, I, my eyes water when I think about how little I was earning at the time. Mm -hmm. My goodness, I was. <laughs> I had my first job. I was independent. I was running around the region, reporting on stories and being on the news, and I, I loved it. Um, and then after a year, I went. I moved to London to the BBC. Um, and then the BBC is amazing because, firstly, no one would ever design it in the way that it's grown up mm -hmm. over almost a hundred years. But because it's so vast, I had the most diverse career I could ever imagine. Started off in radio news and then went to work for a part of the BBC Radio One, which is a it's pop music station, mm. and then started doing news there and then started presenting uh, a small kind of entertainment news segment and then sort of started to do entertainment news on television at the BBC. And then, yeah, just kind of had more and more opportunities to to just be on air in different parts of the BBC, doing different things, interviewing like celebrities and politicians and just having an incredible I was going time. to say, what a and, great, at that age too, like what a great yeah, uh, it, it, just beat and opportunity for, for a young person. It was extraordinary and you know i managed to do i was able to do a lot of other things outside of news as well which i think is really important uh for people to be able to do because it just gives you a i think a more rounded appreciation of the things that people are talking about outside of news mm -hmm. and i was able to you know host uh travel shows and science programs and music shows and current affairs shows i even had my own chat show for one season which was fun <laughs> Kind of weird. Um, <laughs> then I thought, okay, this is going great. What's what am I going to do next? Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but there are moments in my career when I look back and think I've made proactive decisions to get off the the trajectory that I'm on to do something different. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my career and thought I've had so much fun, but the thing that I'm really getting the most out of is news. And so I made the decision to actually go and uh, be a full-time news reporter again. And at the time, I was actually a, a pop music DJ in the UK. How cool. Uh, well, yeah, cool is one word to describe, but I, don't, I think maybe I was trying to be cool. I'm not sure I was succeeding. <laughs> um, and I was, getting to do all, I was getting to do all this amazing, interesting stuff on the side, including some news and current affairs. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well... You know, there's only so many times you can interview a boy band and care about it. Right. So yeah, I get that. The, uh, the news work, news reporting, 
that has longevity and it's much more intellectually rewarding. Sure. Um, so I went back into news and then spent another 10 years in different parts of the BBC, including six years in the US as a foreign correspondent based in DC and then uh, on the West Coast, mm -hmm. traveling around the whole world. And then finished my BBC career as an anchor based out of London mm -hmm. and deploying around the world. And And yeah, after 21 years, I thought I've done everything I wanted to do. Is there a different way that I can make a difference in the world? Right. And that's an important kind of, I think, um, thought process for me mm -hmm. because I'd gone into journalism because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help tell stories that help people make sense of the world. Sure. Um, after 21 years, I felt, okay, I think there might be other ways. And the thing that really crystallized this for me was when in 2013, I think it was, I went to the Philippines to cover the aftermath of Typhoon Haiyan, which oh, was, wow. still is the, the most the fiercest recorded storm um, ever. Mm -hmm. um, and we helicoptered into the worst hit place, Tacloban City, um, right afterwards. And as you can imagine, it was a scene of sheer and utter devastation. Of course. Um, and I did a good job as a journalist. Um, but at the same time, I saw the work that was going on on the ground done by many different actors, whether it was the local or national government, whether it was the military, whether it was international aid agencies or the UN, or just people themselves yeah. to actually recover, reconstruct, rebuild. And I thought, oh, I wonder if this is how I could make a difference, be more involved sure. in that. Um, and when I thought that, I thought, okay, you know, that's saying to myself, maybe it's time to step over the line into advocacy. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that, I thought, okay, well, then I have to leave journalism. Um, because the way I had always spent my career as a journalist is understanding that the job of the journalist is to tell the story of the world as it is, uh -huh. not how you would like to be right it's a journalist's job to say this thing is happening someone else needs to do something about it mm -hmm. to expose injustice to hold and shine a light on wrongdoing uh that's what i believe but it's not the journalist's job to solve it sure it is the advocate's job to both shine light and say this is what's happening in the world it's terribly wrong but then to say here's the answer mm-hmm and so when I thought, okay, I actually want to start being part of the answer. I mean, the way I sort of thought about it to myself and was that I wanted to go from asking the tough questions to helping to find the answers. Sure. Um, and when I realized that, I thought, okay, time to leave journalism and move into the world of being an advocate for something. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always interested in international development issues. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that's where I want to go. I want to go and work in that environment. And communications was going to be my way in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I sort of made that, made that transition, going from journalism at the BBC. My first job was running the communications team at the Center for Global Development uh, think tank here in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at the UN Foundation. From all the journalists that I know that have made that transition, I know that that is a big move. Uh, because really, with 21 years uh, background, you're really taking a, a bit of a leap of faith. 
And I have to believe that once you got there, that there was, um, there was a period of transition where you had to sort of figure out how that journalism background then translates into communicating in a way. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, how that background helped you become a better communicator where you are today? Sure. Um, it's a well-trodden path from journalism into communications because for a reason, because journalists are really good storytellers. Telling is often what you, well, not often, always uh, essential to helping advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found that very useful. I found my my writing and broadcast and, you know, really helpful my you know ability to kind of like imagine block and host events really helps um my sense of a story mm-hmm. being able to kind of pitch to reporters as well and actually what i liked about the think tank environment was that think tanks do research and create new ideas and new knowledge and new knowledge is news and so there was always a pipeline of stories to tell um you know sometimes working with really brilliant senior fellows, mm-hmm. PhD economists and the like, you know, they don't see that what they're creating is a story. They're doing, you know, they're doing a paper. And often that paper is full of regression analysis and may have more Greek letters in it than English letters. Sure. But it was my job to tell them, you're telling a story. There is a beginning and a middle and an end. What what was the problem? What did I do and what did I find? Um and that's a story. And so I had to help translate that for the organization's own channels for other channels and for the media as well. So that was a real benefit. What no one tells you when you go from journalism into communications, though, is that it's only one part of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. You have to learn about strategy and you have to learn about management, especially if you go into a managerial role. You haven't been in the managerial role in journalism. Um, and I had to learn that on the job. Sure. And you learn that by stumbling and failing and guessing <laughs> and figuring it out. Of course. Um, And then that helps you really become more rounded as a communicator. But at the core of it, you're telling stories. Mm -hmm. It's just that the advocate has a story to tell and a solution in hand that they actually are um, encouraging. Uh, Whereas the journalist is like, this is the story. This is what happened. Someone else needs to go and solve it. Right. Tell me a little bit about the UN Foundation. Talk to me a little bit about the work that you do there. So the UN Foundation was set up almost 25 years ago by Ted Turner, mm. um, who was a staunch UN advocate and a you know, legendary uh, environmentalist. And it was set up to pursue and support UN, the UN and UN causes, um, both directly to the UN, with the UN and also outside in the world by kind of you know, creating understanding. Mm. And that's... A lot of what the foundation still does, as well as really bringing together the right actors and right voices and experts to drive policy making on big global issues. So, you know, something like climate change is a classic uh, issue, is the classic issue that cannot be solved unilaterally. Yeah. We can only solve that through cooperation, global cooperation. Actually, the pandemic is another example as well. You know, we need to solve that everywhere so that everyone is safe anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think, as we're seeing, the world is not doing a great job on working together. And right now, you look at the polarization in the world, the world feels fractured. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
crises are mounting, climate change, the you know global pandemic, the threat of the next pandemic. No, it's not. It's not an if. It's a when. Mm-hmm. Look at the rise in global inequality. Look at the way that technology benefits the few and not uh, the many. Uh, look at how gender inequality still persists. It's an urgent crisis that won't solve itself just by general progress. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of issues out there, and none of this can be solved by individual action. Only individual action. They have to be solved by working together as communities, as citizens, as groups of experts, as governments. Um, the foundation has all its life, all its 25 years, worked to really bring those right people together to drive better outcomes and better policy uh, as well. So it's, you know, we're still telling stories in communications. We're still telling the stories of what's wrong in the world, what stays wrong in the world, how we're not making the progress we need to make on shared goals articulated in the sustainable development goals. But we're also saying these are some of the answers Mm -hmm. of uh, an advocate. Um, And so that's what I've been doing. I mean, I have to say that right now I'm kind of sort of morphing again a little bit. You know, I think the last couple of years, the pandemic has led to a lot of people um, reassessing Mm -hmm. and now, I, uh, you know, there's been this thing called the Great Resignation. That's yes. not what I'm doing, but I think there's a moment of reinvention. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I have sort of several hats on, as well as communications. You know, I'm working on uh, a podcast and a book project to start to do a little bit more journalism again, because I think I'm really interested to think, well, what are the things that I've learned throughout my career and how do I use them going forward? Mm. Tell me a little bit about that. What's the concept behind all of that? It, it to me, it sounds like um, it sounds like a lot of the conversations I'm having that people are looking for other ways to sort of grow and share and and discuss. But tell me a little bit about this new direction that you're started to head in in terms of the the book and the podcast. Yeah, I mean, uh, like you said, it's like it's just thinking. What do I want to be in the next phase of my career? What do I want to be when I'm all grown up? (laughs) (laughs) I've had this really fun time so far, and it's been really exciting and rewarding, and I've learned a lot. And I want to put all of that to use. Mm -hmm. And something that I've been really thinking about a lot in the last couple of of years is this idea of identity and belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... You know, the U.S., certainly other countries, our industries have all been roiled um, by a social and racial and political reckoning mm-hmm. of the last couple of years. No question. And yeah, and I, I, I don't think we've come out of it, but I think we're all sort of like blinking into the light going, what just happened or what's happening? Mm-hmm. And I actually think there is a flourishing of plurality that I think is beautiful to see. And what I'm interested in doing is exploring and actually advancing ways for people to show up as their authentic selves, whether ah. it's at work, whether it's their own, in their own lives. I love that. And so my podcast and book project, which you know, I have to say are very nascent, you know, if there's any publishers or investors listening, then it will be great to get in touch. Um, <laughs> um, I'm looking at this idea of identity, but I'm looking at it through the lens of food. 
Ah. And that's partly because I'm obsessed with my mum's own cooking. You know, I grew up with like the best Indian food ever. Uh-huh. And whenever people say you can't, there's no good restaurant Indian food in DC, whatever people say, mm-hmm. I'll fight you if you disagree with me. <laughs> um, but then again, I'm not looking for restaurant food. I'm looking for the food that I grew up with. Right. Um, and my premise for both the podcast and the book is that for migrant and diaspora communities, the food we grew up with takes on even greater importance because it not only reminds us of where we came from but it helps us figure out who we are in the countries we now call home interesting and that's certainly true for me you know if i'm feeling the world is getting on top of me then something that kind of really helps me to restore balance is just cooking some of my mum's recipe mm-hmm. and just firstly it's really relaxing yes. but it also just it hits a a nerve and it kind of touches something deep inside that's like okay this is this is my soul's food yes. it helps me realize okay it's all going to be okay and this these flavors you've been tasting these flavors for 50 years 40 years mm-hmm. and they handed down from generations before that and you now cook them for your partner as well so that is a stabilizing force without a question a comforting force as well yeah. so that's what i'm doing so inter- in interviewing interesting and emerging voices uh for the podcast and then working on the book which is more of a, a memoir kind of my own story and building in some of you know my experiences working at the bbc and seeing meeting people from all over the world as well um yeah as i say the beginning of a work in progress. Yes. Plenty of effort left to put in. Nowhere near finished. And I would love it if anybody wants to help. <laughs> well, we're going to promote and we're going to talk about it. And I <laughs> love you. that. Um, I know that my own kids, even just a few weeks ago, everyone was sort of just coming back from vacation and feeling a little sort of disconnected and ready to sort of get back to, you know, being grounded and ready to go back to school. And I made my mom's chicken soup. That is like a home family recipe. I'm not even sure if it's my mother's recipe or my grandmother's. I can't even remember, but it's the one thing that we always go back to because it's a home family recipe and everyone, you know, everyone gets around the table and we enjoy it. And, and you really, you're right. I mean, what you, what you said is it really sort of right then struck a nerve for me that we have these sort of home recipe, family recipes that we go back to that remind us who we are. I love it. Now imagine if you were living in a different country. Absolutely, yeah. How much more important that recipe would become to you. For sure. And what is it like when you prepare it, when you cook it? How does it feel? What does it it remind you of? I think of my mother and I think of my grandparents. And and, and and to to your point, I mean, it's a, it's a, Yes, it is a moment, you know, you're sort of having this experience, but it also really is very much of a reminder and to even be doing that not here in the US. I'm, I only immigrated from New Jersey. (laughs) So, so that's my little, my little transition here to Washington, DC area. But it does, it reminds me of home. It reminds me of, you know, when I was a kid and what she would prepare. I love that. I, I just love that. And I feel like you're absolutely right that there are so many tremendous uh, positive 
projects and um, opportunities that people have sort of found and have these journeys that they've taken because the pandemic had sort of given us the opportunity to really explore that and and be a little more mindful. I absolutely love hearing all about that. We'll promote the book. We'll promote the podcast. I'm so glad (laughs) and wishing you all the best in that. Rajesh, tell me a little bit though, um, I want to go back just for a moment to what you were saying about the UN Foundation, because we are living in this very, um, you know, it's a transitional time for the country, really for the globe. Um, So much of what you offer in the communications that you share is hope, but you must also hear from folks who are discouraged and who are feeling as if, um, I'm going to put you on the spot here, but is there advice, is there counsel that you give to folks that sort of feel as if things are headed in the wrong direction? Yeah, look, it, it must be hard, and yes, it can be hard to maintain optimism when every report we see on every subject is telling us that we're heading in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. whether it's the latest and best climate science from the IPCC, whether it's the regular reporting on progress on the sustainable development goals, whether it's the latest figures on the disparity between global vaccination rates against COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing we need to remember also is that progress still happens. Progress happens at all levels. It's just sometimes we don't see it. Um, look at the years that the US was not part of the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm-hmm. A coalition of state governors came together called the US Climate Alliance that together represent more than 50% of the US population and 50% of GDP and almost 40% of US emissions. And they were committed to continuing in line with the Par- the goals of the Paris Agreement I didn't know at that. what we call a subnational level. Mm-hmm. So while we need leaders to lead, and sometimes national governments all over the world don't necessarily step up, mm-hmm. there are many leaders at many different levels, whether they are in their own communities, whether they are in businesses, whether they are at you know, regional or local or state level governments. And you know, you see them coming together to learn from each other and share best practice and help each other and actually advance some of the things that we need to advance to make sure that we can build a world that actually is worthy of future generations. I'm not sure that we're there yet, but progress is happening. Mm. And then the other thing I say to people is it's when things feel like they're at their worst that you have to have a tough conversation with yourself and think, well, what is the alternative? Do we just stop? Do we stop trying to make the world better? Do we stop trying to end inequity? Do we stop trying to bridge the gap of gender inequality? Do we stop trying to uh, reverse and slow down climate change? Do we just stop and give up? No, we no can't. Way. We can't. Right. It's when things feel really bad that you have to say, right, we don't have a choice have to keep going mm-hmm. so that's also what what keeps me going i love that but i do know that that you're faced every day with some really challenging issues and that's really why i wanted to because i know that in order to do the good work that you do that you must have had another sort of bright perspective too on that so i'm, I'm grateful for that point of view for sure at least everyone i mean everyone whoever's listening to this faces tough 
issues in their lives every day. Mm. The world is not an easy place to survive and thrive in. And everyone, whatever they are, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about issues at the global level, climate change, you know, pandemic inequality. But many people spend all their day, how am I going to put food on the table? Right. And it's as important for those people to understand, to, to, I think, to focus on one step, one step at a time, one step at a time. And it's this idea that progress still happens, right? Mm-hmm. And also, just got to keep going, just got to keep going. I love that. I absolutely love that. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Rajesh, we we could talk another 30 minutes, but I'm afraid that I have come to the end of this short conversation. I promise I'm going to ask you to come back and talk to me again about the podcast and the book. Um, But as we close out, you'll be fighting me off. (laughs) No way. Not for this little podcast. You can come back anytime. But I thank you um, so much, Lisa. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, I thank you for the the work that you're doing here. This is really valuable. Well, well, I'm going to ask you, though, for one last, I have one last request before I let you go today. I need you to give me a recommendation for someone for a future conversation on the podcast. Okay, so I think there's a couple of reporters that I would uh, really recommend you speak to. Um, one is Michael Igo, who is, I can't remember his exact title, I think like Chief Investigative Reporter for DevX. And DevX is a media platform focused on the international development sector. And Michael is brilliant, 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 is always getting the most amazing scoops that then often appear in national publications awesome. and sometimes go uncredited so oh. that's wrong well, let's um, get him some credit should credit worthy. exactly so whatever i can do to kind of um dig him up he's a great guy um it'll be worth talking to him and the other person that i'd recommend you talk to is imtiaz tayab who is the cbs news foreign correspondent based in london uh, and also you know not only is a great reporter um but he's also a guest an early guest on my podcast and has a brilliant connection to food and his roots as well he's a, a canadian from pakistani up, uh, heritage oh wow um and yeah has a really interesting relationship with the cooking that he grew up with mm-hmm. and as well as being a great reporter uh, as well so those are two people i would absolutely recommend that you speak to well, I'm going to tell them that you've nominated them for future episodes for sure. Tell us now before we say goodbye, the name of your podcast. So my podcast is going to be called Finding Our Flavor because it's about how you know we spend our lives charting a path mm-hmm. that helps us find our unique flavor. I love that. And I think food is an integral part of that. I couldn't agree more. Rajesh, Thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure. Lisa, it's been really, really fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you for having me. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.